Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Belinda Gale. Belinda Gale was raised on ranches in Nevada's Carson Valley and in the California Sierra Nevada foothills near Sequoia National Park. She began singing and writing Western songs from her personal experiences growing up in this farm country. In 1996, she went on her first tour as an opening act, and she has not stopped since. Since then, she has been named seven times as the Female Performer of the Year by the Western Music Association. Her endearing and high-energy performances have earned her the deserved nickname as America's Western Sweetheart. Slaps her dusty old hat on her leg She is a cowgirl Generations of life handed down Just like her mother and her mother before her She steadfastly standing her ground Cause she is a cowgirl To this life and this land a hard day's work behind her, another before her, yet a smile plays on her pretty face. Her skin hints of leather, she's strong and she's lean, yet moves with a smooth, supple grace. She's a cowgirl, generations of life handed down. One of your songs deals with the current subject. It's about a cowgirl who, I believe, gets pregnant. Oh, you're talking about um, uh, she is a cowgirl. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. That was that actually is an amalgam of many of the women that I grew up around. Actually, the cowgirl that gets pregnant, I just made up. <laughs> I just kind of made, just threw that in there as because it's just the resiliency. I wanted to really be able to portray that, the resiliency of the cowgirls. You can throw anything at them and they'll they'll turn it into something positive ultimately. That's just how the nature of women who are raised on the land, whether it's a farming woman or a ranching woman. I was raised in that environment and I was always in awe of these women. So I kind of took bits and pieces and especially referencing that particular woman, it was the lady that raised my father. She actually homesteaded her own ranch at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And she was 20 years old at the time, women just didn't do that. You know, women didn't go out and create their own homestead ranch. She was married once 
her husband just like disappeared mysteriously and people, you know, the rumor was that he was buried beneath her front porch of her homestead cabin. But it was like, we didn't talk about that. Um, that's but, not in the song. Yeah, that's not in the song. No, it's not. It's not in the song. But then she married a guy from the valley because her ranch was up in the mountains in California near Sequoia National Park. Where you grew up. Where I grew up, right. And so we actually lived on that ranch for many years and took care of her in her old age so that she wouldn't be put into a home. So she married this guy from the valley. And I think he was really thinking he was like this woman with this ranch and all these cows and he was going to be like a cattle baron and, you know, life of Riley kind of thing. Well, he should have got farmer. He should have gotten a clue when on their honeymoon they moved cattle. He should have gotten in a clue what was in what he was in for because she just I guess worked his fanny off and he's like yeah I didn't I, I didn't sign up for this and he bailed. Of course, in those days they didn't really get divorces. You know, they just kind of just didn't live together anymore. And stayed married. And stayed married. Yes. Yes. They stayed married. She never did marry again. She's like, I'm done with men. I, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. But she never actually had children. She raised my father, but she never actually had children. But she was tough as nails. And I think the the really the concept that it's all about the land. It's all about their connection to the land and to the animals. And this is a way of life that is something that has to be preserved and has to be passed on. And I really got that from her and being around her. But yeah, it was. I thought this was a song about deadbeat dads who knock up farm. No, (laughs) Oh no, I'm sorry that that's what you got. No, it was actually my late singing partner's idea to throw the pregnancy in there. He said about how he bailed, you know, and then she raised. Who was that? My late singing partner, Curly Curly. Musgrave. Yeah, Curly Musgrave. Yeah. So it was actually his suggestion. Um, You know, you might want to think about incorporating that into your song. And so we thought about it and I thought, yeah, that's kind of a cool thing because it happens you know, ladies get pregnant. And, and so the, it's just such an admirable thing to keep your child and to persevere with your baby. And I've talked to so many women that have decided to keep their children and they can't imagine what their life would have been like had they not kept their children because they just bring so much joy and life into their life. So it was something that I really wanted to portray in that song. So this woman who raised your father, mm-hmm. um, but that wasn't her child. Right. So, but do you consider her your grandmother? Yes. Yeah, we do. Because she raised my dad from the time he was nine years old till he left to go into the military. So, And so in in some sense, she was a single mom. She was a single mom. Yeah, she was a single mom. Yep. She was a single mom because she raised my dad. And uh, his mother was challenging. We never were close to his mother. And um, I think she had a good heart, but she just didn't know how to be the mom. And so she just... She'd been married several times. She'd been actually married to this lady's nephew, and he actually passed away. And so when she left the mountain with her, wasn't sure what she was going to do with her three children. And so she just piled all my dad's. And my dad had spent a ton of time with her name was Aunt Zinni. He'd spent a ton of time at Aunt Zinni's ranch. He loved Aunt Zinni and loved going up and working on the ranch with her and just hanging out with her. So she just piled all of his stuff in a box, dropped him off at two miles from her house and said, go stay with Aunt Zinni till I come get you. <laughs> and he just stayed there the rest of his she life. She never came back. She never came back. <laughs> so he just... I didn't make it into work. Does that make it into any of your songs? No, it doesn't. Your real grandma never came back. You know what? I guess I try. I just figure there's so much negative stuff that goes on in life that people are so inundated with all this negativity with, you know, it, it comes to you. It just comes to you. So for me, 
what I do, and everybody can do what they want, but for me personally, I try to shed light into people's life and I try to shed some joy and some uplifting and some inspiration. And so I try to make my music more about that. Yes, you don't write sad songs. Uh, Well, they can be lonesome. They can be lonesome or they can be sad, but then they have a good moral story to it or an uplifting ending to it. It's not, not that I shy away from reality, but I try to tend to always bring it back around to something that's going to be optimistic. Yes. that's You are full of optimism. I am. (laughs) (laughs) I really am. I love I'm, that about you. I'm definitely a half full glass girl. Yeah, I definitely like, More like three quarters. Three quarters, yeah. I really am, true. You kind of overestimate <laughs> how good things are. Okay. I, you know, I'd rather do that. You know, I'd rather do that and be disappointed and always be looking for the positive than have to be the one that's always looking for the negative. So, yeah, because you'll find what you're looking for, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Anthony, she was good with weaponry and ropes and anything, animals. Any, anything to do tell me about that. Anything to do with it. Well, I mean, she was a crack shot. She she ran the ranch for the good part of her life. Did she have trophies like hunters would have? No, no, no. She didn't no. keep that. She didn't mm-hmm. care about that. Yeah, she, she didn't care about that. I mean, her cabin when we moved in with her to take care of her because her nieces and nephews were the only family that were around. At the time we were living in Nevada because I lived in the Carson Valley in Nevada from six months old to 12. And then I was 12 when we moved to the ranch to take care of Aunt Zinni. But her nieces and nephews, she was having some health issues and she was starting to have some dementia issues. Her nieces and nephews were just going to put her in a home. And my dad said, she's lived on the land her entire life. That will kill her. She will, she will die. She will not survive in a home. And so he moved our whole family to her ranch and we took care of her ranch for several years and her, but she was just tough as nails. The ranch house was a one bedroom house. It had running water, but it was gravity flow water from the river, which means she was on the side of a hill and you run pipes from wherever the nozzle is that feeds the house, PVC pipes up the hill and stick it the other end in the river. And that's where you get your water from the river. And there was no central heating. All the heating in the house was from wood stove and a fireplace. So we were constantly cutting wood because we were at about 4,000 feet and we got snow and sub-zero temperatures in the winter. So all of our heat was from that. There was electricity and we did have a telephone, but in the wintertime, the storms always took out the electricity. So we were Coleman lanterns. When we lived there, they had successive years of flooding. So our water pipes would get washed out and then we'd have to bucket the water up from the river and boil it. And, you know, and so, I mean, we lived... Like old school. And for us kids, we didn't think about it. When you're kids, you just roll with whatever's thrown at you. My poor mother, because here she has four kids, basically a senile elderly woman to care for. And she's living like 1800s. (laughs) You know, so it was in the summer. It was great. We had electricity. We had telephone. We had water. Everything was good. But the winter was rough. (laughs) Yeah, the winter was hard. Yeah. That's in the Sierra foothills. Yes, and actually it's on the way to the back entrance of Sequoia National Park is where that ranch. Beautiful country. Gorgeous. So many of your songs are connected to the land Very and much the so. mountains Very and much the rivers. So. Very much so. And the animals that yes. roam Sir. God's earth. Yes. Our country is so connected to the land, whether it's 
farming and ranching the land or appreciating all of our beautiful national park systems. I think that when you're involved in the land, whether you're hiking it or working it or whatever, there's just this wonderful spiritual connection that happens. And I think when you're blessed enough to actually live your life on the land, like I was my growing up years, you just can't get disconnected from it. Anything that's really lovely in your life is somehow connected back to the land and back to nature. And so that's just how I roll. Yep. All Along the Buffalo is a song of rooted in that. It is, you know, and the, and the lovely story behind that is I was actually performing in Silver Dollar City. And there was a gentleman who was raised right on the Arkansas, Missouri border along this place called the Upper Buffalo River. And when he was growing up, it was all these little homesteads all along the river. His dad ran cattle and there was a little old lady that they used to go buy cattle from. Her name was Granny. She had this cabin kind of perched on the side of the hill that just overlooked this gorgeous valley up in those mountains, in those Ozark Mountains. And he loved going there to get cattle because while his dad was looking at the cattle, he would sit on the porch with Granny. He was just a kid, like, you know, eight, nine years old. She'd go get him a cup of coffee. She'd give him a cup of coffee and they'd sit on the rockers on her front porch. And she would talk to him like he was an adult. And it made him feel very, he had a cup of coffee. He's being spoken to like he's an adult. He felt very important and valued. And he just really loved it. Well, then in the 70s, and now he's a young adult by this point, the government decided to turn that whole upper Buffalo area back into a wilderness area because it is exquisitely gorgeous. And so they started going through there and buying out the people from all these little homesteads that had been there forever from the 1800s. And so many of the people, of course, were like happy, like, yay, somebody wants to buy my place. I'm out of here, you know, and they were happy to sell. And other people were very connected to the land and they didn't want to sell. And granny just refused to sell. She just dug her heels in and she was like ancient at that point, looking especially, I don't know how old she actually was, but she looked ancient, um, kind of this really wiry little old, you know, tough lady. And so the government agreed that she could stay on her place until she passed. And then her land, they had all the papers drawn up, their land would then go to the government. Well, they grossly underestimated how long granny was going to be sticking around. <laughs> How many years did she make? Uh, it was several years, and she was still going strong with no sign of letting up. And so, I mean, they honored their agreement to not say you have to move, but Granny was self-sufficient. She had her milk cow, her chickens, her garden, her cattle, her cabin with her wood-burning stove. You know, I mean, she didn't even really want to go to town. Her family would bring her in, like, you know, salt, sugar, flour, that kind of stuff. But everything else she just had right there for herself. Well, they started taking all that away from her. They started saying, you can't have domesticated animals on a wilderness area. So she couldn't have her chickens and her dogs or her any of that. So they took that away from her. And they just started telling her one by one, she, you can't have a garden. You can't have this. You can't do that. When they told her she could no longer burn wood in her wood stove because that was a fire hazard, she, of course, couldn't live there because she couldn't. I mean, all she had was a wood-burning cook stove. So she couldn't cook. She couldn't heat her home. So her family moved her off the land. 
unbeknownst to them, her family or the government, she had been diagnosed with cancer and she hadn't told anyone. And she died like two weeks after she moved off the land. And so that was kind of a bitter, sweet story. But really, she died of a broken heart. She did. I think that really probably rushed it. Well, um, back up to, I'm in Silver Dollar City, this gentleman who was raised in that area and knew all of this history. He invited us to take us on a trail ride on our days off on the upper Buffalo River. And so as we're riding this exquisitely gorgeous trail that just topography I could not even imagine in the Midwest... And he's telling us this story. And then our destination is Granny's cabin. And we're going to eat lunch there and then come back. And all along the way, you see these cabins that are just falling apart. And we would stop and go in. And you see, like, newspaper and magazine papers on the wall for insulation, you know, on these. And you realize that, I mean, families were raised here. In these one-room cabins, children were raised here. Lives were lived here. Generations lived here. And then you get to Granny's cabin, and it was fall. So, you know, that valley was just alight with all of the colors of fall. And we were actually sitting on the porch having lunch. We'd packed in a lunch, and it has sweet gum trees all around there. And this big gust of wind hit the trees, and it looked like it was raining gold. All these brightly colored yellow leaves are falling all around us like a heavy snowstorm. It was just magical. And through these leaves, you could see the horses out grazing on her little pasture hobbled up. And it was just like so picturesque, I couldn't believe it. Well, as we were leaving the cabin, he was telling us about how Granny passed and how all that. And he said, but then he stopped and he said, do you know what, though, Belinda? He said, everybody was really embittered towards the government with their treatment of Granny and that just how they turned this all into this wilderness area. And, you know, they took this land away from us kind of thing. He said, but then about five years after Granny passed, the developers discovered that area and they bought up all this land around the wilderness area and turned it into ranchettes, like little five acre ranchettes. So then this is now all private land around there and they shut off all of the trails where people could really couldn't ride those areas. And he said, you know what, if they hadn't turned this into a national forest, we would not be riding this trail today. It too would be little five acre ranchettes. And so he said, so really the sacrifice that all those people made was a gift to the rest of us. And so that is what really struck a note. I mean, the whole story was like enthralling me, but that really struck a note. And by the time we got back to the horse trailers at the end of our ride, I had this song like blocked out in my head to tell this story of that Upper Buffalo River So that area. must be an exciting moment for a songwriter. Oh, yeah. And so it what do like, you do? I mean, I'm like trying to remember the lines that are coming to me and the concepts that are coming to me. And so I start grabbing in my purse for anything I can write on to start r- scratching these ideas down. And and my husband's trying to have a conversation with me. And I'm like, I, 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 I can't talk right now because I don't want to lose all this stuff that's you know coming around in my head. And as soon as we got back to the room, I just went and shut myself away and started writing and writing and writing and writing. And my style of writing normally is I get doing a brain dump, you know, of everything that's going on in my head. And then I go back and start organizing it and fine tuning it and making it all rhyme and doing all that. So by the time we left, I had the song and I just, I was really blessed that it was recognized and I could capture that. Yep. What is the kind of day that fills your soul? Oh, the kind of day that fills my soul is the, um, that day that we were writing, it was fall. There was a little bit of crispiness in the air. So there's just like this wonderful freshness about the day. 
And when you're riding through these sweet gum trees, the sun, you keep getting these these rays of sun that are hitting your face and just this little bit of warmth and that kind of thing. And you feel, I think when you feel so small in such an incredibly beautiful setting, I'm a believer. So just you feel like you can just feel the Lord everywhere in his majesty and creation all around you. And it just makes you feel so blessed to be a part of what you're experiencing. So that's a day that fills my soul. Yeah, for sure. I like the way you use Washington to totally encapsulate the federal government. Right. As a single word. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it is the government. And I mean, for like it, love it, you know, hate it, believe in it or whatever. It all emanates from there, really. I mean, that's... When you say Washington in that part of the country, what does that mean? You mean in the Midwest? Where this song is written about. Where this song is written about. I think... The Buffalo River. I think that the initial gut reaction is Washington. You know, Washington, those people in Washington, they do all this stuff that makes you mad, you know, but... Me, the eternal optimist, what I tried to pull out in the song is that, yes, there's a lot of stuff that ticks us off and makes us angry or whatever, but there is good that comes out as well. They do some good things. They, there are some positives that, that result from what they do. One of the things, I, I actually didn't know what a gum tree was. Oh, okay. So I had to look that up. Okay. Um, but I love that you never just call a tree a tree. It's either a pine, a juniper, or a gum tree <laughs> in your song. Yeah. You know, and you really talk about, do you study nature? Like the, the I agriculture? Don't, no, I don't. I mean, I love, just, I love plants because I grew, yes. I grew up, my mother loved her flower garden and we often helped her with her flower garden. We always grew our own vegetables and canned them. I mean, that's, it was just part of the way I grew up. So to me, nurturing things, living things, it's just always been fascinating to me. And and to me, a tree is never just a tree and a flower is never just a flower. It's like, what kind of flower is that? So I do study it informally, but I don't, just because I'm fascinated with it, but I've never really like studied it. But yeah, and because, I mean, a gum tree is very different from a juniper tree, is very different from a sequoia, you know, tree. It's very different. So if you're trying to paint a picture, you need to tell what the people are looking at. And so you really do have to identify them. I didn't know what a cane break was. I'd never seen a cane break. What is a cane break? A cane break. It's like this really thick stuff that grows. And it's like all these, they call it cane because it's all like straight up and down. I don't know. I've never seen sugar cane, (laughs) so I don't know. It's, It's like these stalks that are very leafy and they grow very tightly together and they call it a cane break. But it, like a bamboo forest. It makes like a wall. Uh-huh. It, I mean, a literal, as it's going along the path that's curving along, it looks like this little green wall that's along either side of the path. So I was, I was fascinated by the cane breaks. Yeah. So anyway. Well, it gives all of your songwriting a real naturalistic feel mm. and authenticity. Oh, thank you. I think is a part of your music. Thank you. Being authentic. Well, I want to take the people on a journey. Western music is about storytelling. I mean, all music tells the story to some degree, but I think that really is the essence of Western music is that 99% of it is telling a story. That's why it's more vocal driven and the music is back a little bit because if you can't hear the words, you can't follow the story. And so from beginning to end, it's a story. So that's, that's important to be able to create those visuals. Thank you for listening to Backstory Song. 
If you like our podcast, you can become a patron at our Patreon page, where you will receive bonus interview tracks with your favorite songwriters and early release access to upcoming episodes. It is only $3 per month or the price of a cup of coffee to become a Backstory Song patron. Rises up from the valley floor Covered with rocks and so much more Lurk between the junipers and boulders Mountain lion, prickly pear There is danger, beware And don't forget to look back over your shoulder Get sneaking javelina Even if you haven't seen one They're like whispers in the shadows The beauty it will mesmerize But don't forget those wary eyes Always creeping there in the hollows Granite Mountain Oh, the silhouette we know so Your songs have a real definition of place. Okay. Because of that. Yes. Right? Yes. Because of all the details you put into yes. it. And you, you often reveal that sense of place not immediately in the song. It takes no. a while. Granite Mountain, you reveal it in the title. Yes. Yeah. Granite Mountain is a special song to me because it started out as you know, just, oh, this would be a nice song to write. We moved from um, California. We were in the Sacramento area and we moved to Prescott, Arizona. We had friends there. Also, it's more central for where I'm, a lot of my music happens. Beautiful area. So we moved there in the first house that we rented a house till we could decide where we wanted to land in the area. And we were right at the foot of Granite Mountain. Now we were at 5,000 feet where we were living and Granite Mountain soared another thousand or so feet or more above us. I mean, it was real. I don't know how high Granite straight Mountain up. is. It's straight up and it's covered with all this granite. Kind of like a fault line where it meets. Oh man, it just, bam, there it is. And because it's so rocky with all these granite outcroppings, it is like the largest natural habitat for mountain lions in the country. And then, of course, there's the javelina and there's bobcats and there's, I mean, all the, and then there's cactus and rattlesnakes I, and everything's on that mountain. I think we call them all cougars here in Utah. Oh, cougars. Okay. <laughs> well, they, whatever they are, they're dangerous and they're all on that mountain. But there's also like 200 miles of riding trails and hiking trails on that mountain. The weather at the bottom of the mountain can be very different from the weather at the top of the mountain. And so there's, You'd have to be mindful of the dangers because they're, I mean, that's in my song, but it's a, it can be dangerous and people don't realize that if they're not from the area. You know, people that are just tourists coming through, they try to caution them and they're forever rescuing somebody off of that mountain because they've 
gotten up there in the weather or whatever. So I was fascinated with the mountain. And then as we made friends with their neighbors, they started telling us some of the lore of the mountain and about the Native Americans, the Yavapai Indians that used to hunt on it all the time. And there were actually elk at one time on that mountain. And then this one person tried to like homestead part of the mountain, but it was just, they just couldn't make a go of it. It was just too rough on them. And they abandoned the cabin. And so I thought it'd be fun to write this story about this mountain. Sometimes, I don't know if, if other songwriters you've interviewed will say this, but you get a song and it should be done, but you know it's not. You know you know that it needs something else and you can't put your finger on it, but so you just have to kind of put it away for a while and then bring it back out again when you're with a fresher perspective. So I did that. I put it away and I was on tour in Colorado. My husband was at home with the horses and our dogs and all the stuff. And so he was talking to me on the phone. We talk every day when I'm on the on the road. And he said, oh, by the way, babe, there's some smoke behind Granite Mountain. I think it's a control burn because they do a lot of those control burns. And he said, I'll let you know. Well, the next phone call I got, I was expecting from him. It was from our neighbor and it was not a control burn. It was a wildfire. And the wildfire had topped Granite Mountain and was coming straight down the mountain towards our house. And the neighbors wanted to make sure if we were home, they were prepared to go in and get our animals out because we had somebody that would come take care of our animals when we were gone. I said, no, my husband's there. It should be fine. So then he called. I've tried to call him, but of course, couldn't get through. The lines are all jammed. The next call I got from him was he said, I don't have time to talk to you right now. Just tell me where all your guitars are. <laughs> I had put them all in a closet and he didn't know where they were. <laughs> did you have songwriting books too? I, I did, but I, I mean, let it burn. well, he had, he literally had an hour to get every, whatever, to he get could. whatever, to get the animals loaded up and to get whatever he so could. So how do you prioritize that? Animals, guitars, he, he, and then what, what comes well, next? He did animals, <laughs> guitars. We have silver parade saddles. So he got those out and all their guns and ammunition because he thought that would not be a good thing to be in the house if it caught on fire and there's people trying to defend the house. And that's pretty much all he got out. That's all he could fit. And he didn't have time to go and come back again. And I could hear when he's talking to me, I could hear the deputy in the back saying, we've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go. So he's retired military. So he has like this very calm demeanor about stuff. So he took all these amazing pictures. While he was loading the animals, they were literally flying over, dumping slurry on him and the animals and the house. And he said that these big, planes were actually skimming the top of our trees. They were flying so low. And just because we found out later that they had to stop it at our house or it was going to sweep through this whole area where we lived. And so they had to stop it there. Well, they did. They stopped the fire. Um, and what really stopped it was a big break that the hot shots cut, you know, because they'll come in, they'll go in. The hot shots? The hot shots are crews that go in and the best way to stop a fire is to take away its fuel. So they will have these huge strips of land that they go in and cut all the wood out and just take everything out of that strip that could burn. And unless there's sparks that jump the break, they can stop it at the break. And that's what happened. So they'd gone in as the fire was coming and clear cut and clear, this and just, stretch just, of just break. Just this big stretch of area behind our house with nothing was on it for fuel. That's the hot and, shot. It burned right up to that break and then it didn't burn past. So they stopped the fire at that break. That's a dangerous job. Oh, incredibly dangerous job. So then we... I came home like three days later. We still couldn't get in because they didn't have the fire contained well enough, but they escorted us into our home because I had to get more CDs. I had to get some stuff because I was headed out to Texas for my, the next leg of my, my performing. And so when we pulled up, all these hot shots were sitting on our porch 
having lunch. And so it, we had this amazing experience where we got to actually thank them for saving our home, shake their hand, get what I needed and get back out again. And we were, as we were leaving, I told my husband, I said, they're so young. I mean, they look like high school kids. They looked so young. And he goes, well, to do the work they have to do, they have to be incredibly fit. She said, I can see why they would have to be young men doing this job, except for a couple of the supervisors that were older, maybe 30s. You know, um, most of these guys were probably early 20s. So then I was went to Texas. I was doing my gig. It's like 10 days later. And my husband calls me. He said, I know I don't watch the news because the news, I think, is really depressing. And my husband tells it me. It would wreck your optimism. About what, what I need to know, my husband tells me, you know, kind of thing. And so because we're on the same page. Um, so he says, I know you don't watch the news. He said, so I know you haven't heard this, but you know all those guys that we met on our porch. I said, I said, they were just killed in the Yarnell fire. They're the Granite Mountain hotshots. I don't know if you remember that episode. Yes. All those young men that we had met had died in that fire. And I, I mean, I just had a meltdown. I couldn't believe it. And it was so devastating. But in the wake of what me just trying to process that, just trying to wrap my head around the fact that these vibrant, smiling young men with promising lives ahead of them were just gone. I remembered my song, Granite Mountain. So I went back and I looked at it and I thought, how can I incorporate a tribute to these? I mean, it's Granite Mountain is the name of the song. These heroes. How How can I honor them with this song? So I actually added a bridge in the song and it's just simple. It just talks about how devastating a fire can be and how these people risk their lives to save our homes and our land, just really to honor them. And I dedicated the album to them, the song, of course, to them. Um, And as long as I draw breath, I'll be singing this song and making sure that they're not forgotten. And we actually incorporated a couple of pictures that my husband took in the album. It's in the album underneath the CD of the fire. So we actually put those shots in the, the album artwork. Yep. And it's dedicated to them. On the recorded version, you have a fiddle and some really beautiful guitar. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the production of this song. You know what? I used a producer who is an incredible musician. He did all the guitar work and he loved it because he could pull out his baritone guitar. That's what he used. I was wondering the, what kind of guitar. It's a baritone is. guitar and it just has this sound that is so unique and so definitive. And it just really captured the drama at that point in this song. But his name is Rich O'Brien. He's out of Fort Worth, Texas. And he is like the go-to guitar player for like Red Steagall and these major people. He's on a lot of people's recordings. He's an amazing producer. He's very definitive about what he's wanting, but he also gives you room to be creative. And he plays all of the guitar work on there, all of the guitar work. And he brought in a fiddle player that I was not familiar with. And he, I can't remember his name now. I'm sorry. So, um, but he had never worked with him before either, but he was highly recommended to him. So he said, Belinda, would, I haven't worked with him before. What would you mind? And I said, if you feel good about it, I trust you and let's go for it. And he did a superb job, a superb job. And then the engineer on that was another young man that was just amazing. Um, his name is Aram Medor. I mean, I met her, I guess, I don't even know how you spell it, but, and he's at in Burleson. That's where the studio is, is in Burleson, Texas. It was so funny because when I got to do the vocal production, Rich said, I'm just going to turn you over to Aram. I'm, I'm not even going to be there that day. And I went, okay, 
I highly respected Aram as an engineer. I just saw the magic that he could work. I kind of finicky about the sound. I don't want it to be too perfect on the recording because I don't want people to hear one thing on my album and then hear something different when they come to my live show. I want it to be very close. I mean, you, you add more instrumentation because they just have their ears on, you know, they're not, they don't have the visual, they're just listening. Whereas when they're at a live show, you have the visual, so you can get by with less instrumentation because you have more entertainment factor going on because of your visuals. But I don't want it to be perfect. I don't want it to, you know, every note to just be like, exactly perfectly on because I don't sing like that. Who sings like that? Nobody sings like that. So I just, I wanted to be more organic, I guess. And so I was very admired him as an engineer, but I was like, okay, okay. But he turned out to be an amazing vocal producer. And so I had a ball with him as a vocal producer as well. A lot of times when producers, when you're in the studio and you're trying to capture whatever, they'll say, can you do it again? I think you have a better one in you, you know? And you're like, okay. Or you'll say, I think I have a better one. Let me try again. He would actually give you some pointers like, how about if you tried this? Or have you thought about putting this kind of a slant on that particular note? And so he could like, oh, I haven't thought of that. I'll try that. And so it was very fun. It was very fun. And I think it really brought the whole album together, but specifically these songs that are so important to me. You end the song on Hoo Hoo's and... I call, I call it hoo-hoo. Hoo-hoo's. You know, because that's the <laughs> lyric you write, right? Like, hoo-hoo. Right? Okay. And, you, and you go demonstrate the power and beauty of your voice oh. in the hoo-hoo's. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> I still don't know what you mean by hoo-hoo's. No, <laughs> the end of the song. Think about the end of the song. Woo-hoo, you know, oh, you know, oh, okay. You know, you, uh, yes. It's not yodeling. Oh, it's just ooze. And ooze, stuff. ooze, yeah, ooze. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes. We call it the hoo hoo. Yes, the hoo hoo. Actually, I, we have a friend, and his uh, <laughs> his wife goes to these mountain town music events with us, and he's on the board of mountain town music, which is one of the music charities around here. And she screams hoo hoo like when she cheers. Songs oh, okay. Every time. Okay. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so we, her nickname is Hoo Hoo. Okay, oh, that's cute. <laughs> so I mean, like, what is the lyric that you wrote that you were singing there? Oh, I didn't write any lyric. You I just, just, it just started hoo just came out of my head. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, I guess it's my yodeling background. I don't know. You just, you just start putting a pretty tone out there. And when you want to create a, an emotion without a lyric really attached to it, because at that point in the song, I wanted to just let it rest in people's hearts where it was. And so I didn't want to clutter it up with lyric to try to take their mind to someplace else. So if you just have these beautiful tones going on that are just kind of soaring and just kind of there, then people can just let that emotion be whatever it is for them without you trying to dictate to them what they should be feeling. So that's why. So um, were you feeling an emotion that you're trying to communicate in the hoops? Oh, uh, probably just awe, you know, awe at the beautiful place I was singing about and awe about the willingness of these men to put their lives on the line like they did. And obviously to very catastrophic result, but also I think, I mean, I think when I was writing it and singing that particular part, I was thinking about not only them, but all of our first responders, our police officers, our military. I think we forget that when they go to work every day, they're actually putting their life on the line. I mean, the worst thing we think about when we're going to work, I mean, me as a musician, is the sound guy going to be good? You know, I hope I don't screw up the lyric or I hope I don't forget this or people going to businesses, you know, they have some angst with one of their employers or employees or what, I mean, whatever. 
we don't have to think about, are we going to come home alive from our job? So I think we forget about that. So I think that's something I really wanted to honor and kind of capture in that song as well. Yeah. So I ask a lot of songwriters, how do you know when a song is done? And, you know, in theory, they can get reworked. I bring up Layla by Eric Clapton. He reworked that and and became a hit again later as a totally different song. Wow. You know, but that's rare, Mm -hmm. right? Usually you write a song and how do you know when it's done? You know, <laughs> that is really. And on this one, you didn't. You knew it wasn't done. It wasn't done, and, and I mean, you waited it, for something else to come to, to you. Come to me, yeah. But I think I don't think any song is ever entirely completely done. You just have to get to a point where you're like, I need to go launch this baby. I could fuss over it for months or years. So you start playing it live? I start doing it live, and sometimes it will. Often it will continue to evolve as I sing it live, because I will sing it differently or something will occur to me. So I'll change a lyric or I'll add something or take something away. And I think even after you record it, it still evolves. And then you're like, oh man, I wish I could go back and record this over and add this really cool thing I just put in there. So I think as a songwriter, I don't think you ever quit. You just decide at some point, I need to start singing this. I mean, I need to get it off the page and out of the rehearsal room and onto the stage and see where it goes. So And so the audience reacts and do you mm-hmm. look for that and change the songs based on the audience? Sometimes, reaction? yeah. I can't give you a for instance, but there's songs that I think this is a pretty good song and I get like it goes like nothing from the audience. So that goes back in the box and just stays there until I can figure out what the heck was wrong with it. So, I mean, stuff happens. And if you're not getting the kind of reactions you think you should be getting at points in the song, you need to go back and look at it. And how do I, how can I say it? Often it's more succinctly. Maybe there's too much in there. You need to pare it down and make it more simple where it can just be conveyed more directly and more simply. So there's just a lot you can do to the songs to rework them. But I think at probably every songwriter their songs are never entirely done. I don't think, not in the Western world anyway. I talked to other songwriters about this because I thought there was something wrong with the way I was writing because I'm like, I think it's ready for stage, but then I, I still keep tweaking it. And everyone I've talked to said, oh yeah, we do the same thing. <laughs> so it's not unique to me. <laughs> I don't know about Nashville songwriters, but but we continue to tweak it as we as we sing it and, and just add and take away. So I feel like the hoo-hoos was the ending and that, you know, that helped you close that song in some mm-hmm. way. Did you do that in one take in the recording studio or did he have you try to stretch that out in you a know, lot of different I don't, ways? I don't remember. Because I really love that part of the song. Oh, no. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I fortunately often get things down in one or two takes. If it works and the producer's happy with it in one or two takes and I feel good about it, I try to leave it at that because I feel, again, back to that, I don't want my stage performance to be too far away from my recording. I figure if I get it in that first take or two, that's probably very close to what I'm going to be doing live. And so I try to keep it, again, you said authentic, and I think that's something that's really important in what we do in our music is that it's deeply authentic because our audiences, they don't care if you never were a cowboy and you just love the cowboy way of life and that's what you sing about, or if you're a real deal cowboy and you're singing from experience, they just want you to be real. They want you to be honest about where you're from and what you're doing, and they want you to be authentic. And they have very little patience for people who throw up facades or try to be something they're not or try to portray themselves as something they're not. They really don't last in this genre. They don't care where you're from. They just want you to love the West, love what you're doing, and to love on them. 
And as long as you do all of that, you're good. <laughs> well, I love the way you give your love on the audience. It's uh, it just you exude on your website. Someone said cutesy. <laughs> You know, I can't get away from that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you like that or not. Uh, I, I first I used to. Wait, I mean, as a kid, you don't, you know, you're like okay. But as a woman, you're like cutesy, really, you know. But you know, it's meant in the sweetest sense of the word. Nobody means it as a derogatory thing, or if they do, I don't pick up on that. So. They're being sweet and kind, so I just accept it for what it is. You know, women want to be elegant and all of that kind of stuff, but I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really, cutesy really is, I'm cute. I'm, you know, that's, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> I love your guitar work. Really? Yes. Ah, it's so, serious? Yeah. Oh, why not? Oh, my word. I mean, I didn't, wow, because I didn't even start playing the guitar until I was 42. Okay. And when I first started in this music, I had a band because I couldn't play, but we figured out really quickly because it is a small niche genre, there's not the money there to sustain a band for the most part. And I really wanted to go full-time in the music. And he said, babe, if you're going to do this full-time, you're going to have to learn how to play the guitar and you're going to have to be willing to go out by yourself. Otherwise, it will be a part-time side gig your whole life. It will not be full-time. So I started learning to play. And I had three chords down pretty badly at that point. And he booked a gig six months out for me alone. So I had six months to bring enough music up to speed that I could step on stage by myself. I mean, they would talk about some woodshedding. Oh my gosh, I was like working 24-7 every minute. It wasn't great, but it was okay. It passed. And I thought at my age, trying to learn an instrument, that if I could just get basic chords down enough to accompany myself that that was as you know that's what all I could really expect because I mean I'm starting really late in life to learn this thing so then I was on my own for a couple of years and then I hooked up with Curly and that was just a whole different story we don't have time for today but Curly was a phenomenal guitar player he taught guitar he was just a natural with beautiful work we were partners for about six months with me just playing rhythm you know basic rhythm and him doing what he did we were having a practice session at his house where he and his wife lived in up in Crestline in uh, California. And he played this pretty little thing. And he and I said, oh, that's beautiful for what part of a song. He goes, He's, I'm glad you like it because that's what you're going to play. And I was like, eh, <laughs> I don't think so. I think you you got that all wrong. And he said, no, really. He goes, Blinda, I've been watching. I didn't want to give you more than you could handle. He goes, but I've been watching your guitar playing and observing for, I wanted to really get a feel for what I thought you were capable of. He goes, and you're capable for, of a lot more than what you're doing right now. So he taught that to me and I actually was able to learn it and do it and, you know, and pull it off on stage. And so then I just, if he told me I could do it, I just tackled it and tried it and learned it. And so I still feel like my strength is much more in my vocals than my guitar work. And my guitar work is just kind of there to give me a platform to sing on. So I'm just in awe if anybody compliments me on my guitar work because I don't think I'm that good. Oh, why would that? It compliments your voice and your, your performance beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. I like watching the YouTube videos where you're just noodling while you're talking. Oh. And, and you're forgetting that you're playing. Yeah. And I'm like, she's playing a song here. Does she know that? <laughs> like, 
just music. <laughs> well, just talking gets boring. So I yeah, just, yeah, yeah. So you got I just, a noodle with so your it kinda, fingers. And, and, and then it kind of just flows. Then you can just kind of flow into the song, which makes it Do you it practice happen. that noodling? No. no. You just, it's like. It's nothing. It's like it's, subconscious. It is. And it's not anything. Sometimes I can, you know, pull off kind of the, some riffs from the song, but mostly it's just kind of noodling. Yeah. Backstory Song's mission is to help songwriters and their work get found and discovered so they can make a living and keep on creating great songs. The best way to pay a songwriter is to listen to their songs. Unfortunately, with the decline of radio listeners, songwriters who live off royalties do not make the same royalties they used to. Please help out the Backstory songwriters by listening to their songs on our playlist. Share Backstory song episodes with your friends on your social media and encourage them to do the same. By liking and sharing Backstory song on your social media, you'll be helping the songwriters on this podcast. specific songs in relation to Curly, which ones was he involved with? Actually, the only song Curly was involved in was She is a Cowgirl, um, because he he had already passed away um, when I did Granite Mountain and um, All Along the Buffalo. And Horse Corral Meadow was prior to me even meeting him. That's off my very first album. I wrote it for my late husband's aunt and uncle, who have a piece of land that's up kind of between Kings and Sequoia National Park. It's private land that they've run cattle on since the 1800s. And there was felt like they were kind of being threatened by the park service. They kept surveying it and, and squeezing in the boundaries of their private land. And they were fearful that the park was going to come in and do eminent domain and take over their ranch up there for make a perfect park ranger station. So she was kind of worried about that happening and was really perturbed and she was a cowgirl too. So she didn't take any guff off anybody and, you know, that they kept moving the boundaries in and in and in. And she's like, the boundaries are the boundaries. How can they keep moving them in like that? So we had this conversation with her and after she left, we thought at just how sad it was if that would go away, because not only did young cowboys come up there and work on their ranch during the summer, but they created a campground area for family and friends to go and get out of that. I don't know if you're in the Central Valley of California in the summertime, but it is not a pleasant place to be. Hot, hot, hot. Ridiculously hot. And so you can literally feel at this one turn, I mean, a very specific turn in the road up that mountain, it changes from hot to pleasant. 
and then you're in nice, cool, lovely weather. And the ranch was up above that area, so people would come up there during the summer just to get out of that horrible heat. And so we wrote this song more as a gift to his aunt and uncle, just to thank them for creating this place for us to come up with our children and enjoy and just the life that they created up there. And just really everything in the song is true. Every image, every reference is absolutely the truth. It's none of it is made up. Something that we've experienced. Like when it said the horses thundering by, when they first go up at the very beginning of the season, they take all the fences down in the winter because the heavy snow would break the fences if they left all the lines up. So they have a way of putting the fences up that you can put them all the wires back up. They, they drop them all to every the ground. Every year, take them down. Every year, put, put them, them back, back up again. So when they go in the spring, the first thing they do is put up the initial fences around the cabin. And then that encompasses one of the meadows. There's like a three-fingered meadow. They bring their horses up and turn them loose. And then they are on that meadow. But then they have free roam of the where the campground is and the houses are. I mean, they roam all around in there. Well, when we first go up and camp, the horses are still roaming and they would be up like by the house. And then all of a sudden they'd run down this road that goes right by the camp area down to the meadow. I mean, it's like 10 or 12 horses and they go running by and you, you hear it. <laughs> so, so every image in that song, but the cool thing is, is she was like in her eighties. She was almost a hundred when she passed away. But at the time, she was in her early 80s, and so she decided she wasn't going to wait around to see what the Forestry Service was going to do. She got collected all of the original homestead papers, went marching into the Division of Forestry, and read them the Riot Act about what they were doing with the boundaries. So they photocopied all of her paperwork and gave it back to her, and then within couple of weeks, there was a new surveying crew that came out and they put all the boundaries back to where their original spot. And that's where they've stayed. So I like to say from stage that apparently an 80 something year old woman armed with legal papers is a very scary thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we love to honor them. They, of course, both passed now. And her grandson is now ranching and running cattle on that land. He's there and has the land and is still it's still a going concern. On Horse Corral Meadow. Horse Corral Meadow. And I had some fans that literally, I told them, I said, if you're going to be in that area at all, go by and say his name is Justin. I said, go by and see Justin and tell him that, you know, you know me. And she said... I imagine he'll give you a warm, gracious smile. Oh, he, he did. She said they stopped by and he came out and he said, can I help you? And they said, we know Belinda. And he, she, he said, oh, come on in. So he had coffee going and they came in and he told him, took him around and showed him. And he said, they just said, like the song says, just like the song says. Yeah. He's keeping the tradition alive. He doesn't bake the pies. She was famous for her pies. She always had four or five freshly baked pies on her counter that she would share with anybody who stopped by. What were your favorite flavors? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's hard because she had some incredible berry pies that she would make chocolate pies apple pies, cream, anything, anything you can think of. What was the berry in that area? Uh, well, she just used whatever she she'd wanted. She'd go to the market. Yeah, she'd go to the market and get whatever she wanted. Yeah. They didn't have like raspberries on the not on the No, not fresh. No, they always too. Chuckleberries. There's always she, like She might have had that, but yeah, there was, <laughs> there was no garden. It was the elev. it was so too high. Too high to grow stuff. It was really too and high. Winters were too nasty. She, she had, you know, the, the wildflowers were incredible in the spring. Just incredible because you see these big splashes of yellow and orange over here and purple over there and these lovely orchid looking things that grew along right where the springs were. And it was just to walk around in the yarrow and just things that almost looked like snapdragons. They weren't, but they were, uh, it was just 
amazing. Lupine. Just a plethora of, of incredible flowers. So you end the song with hoo-hoos. Yes, I do. <laughs> Me and my hoo-hoos. <laughs> this is different, hoo-hoos. Yeah. Um, it is a, yeah, a little different. Yeah. It was more a more of a happy, uplifting, celebratory hoo-hoos, I guess you would you would call it. And my late husband had the idea that to do those the hoo-hoos and then kind of interject some names of some people that were famous on the mountain because my late husband's grandfather was actually one of the first park rangers in Sequoia National Park. And one of the Don Cecil Trail is a trail you can hike in Sequoia National Park is his grandfather. Oh, wow. So they have a deep heritage there. So we scrapped that idea because it was just going to clutter the song up too much. So we decided to not do that. So that was the original idea with those, I call them ooze. Ooze, okay. The ooze. That's what you wrote. It's a lyric. Ooh, just, I, just ooh, just ooh. How do you spell that? Ooh, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> lots no of O's. H's, no Big old S's. long string just of O's. O's. Just, just O's. a long string of O's. And then you just. And then you go. Ooh. You go with it. You just. And I just go with what feels right with the song. I mean, I don't. And I, so I always feel like you're capturing an invisible feeling. I try. You, when you do that, what feeling in this song are you trying to. Joy. Catch? Just joy uh, from the area and just, you know, and, you know, I'm sure you're up here in this, you know, Park City in this breathtaking. Heber Valley. Yes, just breathtaking area up here. And I think when you get into that kind of landscape and topography, you just have such a, wow, you know, such a lift to your, your spirit. And so that's really what I was trying to convey in that and just the beauty of that area and how gorgeous it is. And that's when you knew you were done with the song? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Is it ever really done? Um, yeah, yeah. And I and again, I had no intention of recording it. I just recorded me and my guitar initially on a little tape with a copy of the lyrics and then gave it to his aunt and uncle. And I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen up here, but this is how I feel about this place and how, you know, your nephew feels about this place. And I just want to give this to you. And so she framed the lyrics and put them on the wall of the little cabin and she loved it. But then people that loved them and came there all the time and she'd play that little you know, tape for them. She was so proud of it. They wanted a copy of it. And so when I went to record my very first Western album, I thought, well, why not? You know, I'll go ahead and, and throw this song on there and then that way people can have a copy of it. I mean, it became one of my most requested songs when I perform live and people that love the story and love the song. And so, yeah, so it was. Tell me about the recording. Who was involved? Oh, it was, um, that was my band. I still wasn't playing then. My first album, I could not play. So my band was involved in my lead guitar player. He made some suggestions about some chords because, I mean, at that point, I don't play guitar, right? right. So this melody is just in my head. And I'm just singing it because the melody's there, but I have no clue how to make that happen. Dennis Mack is his name. And he really pulled together the arrangement of it and plugged in the chords and then ultimately taught me how to play it. <laughs> well, you play it well. Thank you. Uh, did you give your late husband a, a songwriting credit? 
I, th- I did. Oh, yes. did you? Okay. Yeah, I did. Yeah, he helped. He didn't really write anything, but he definitely gave me ideas for it. And I'm a firm believer in giving credit where credit is due. And I don't I don't get all hung up with songwriting credits and stuff. In fact, I have one song on one of I didn't write this song. It was an, a song that a songwriter friend sent to me and, and her husband wrote it and she was going to record it. She promised her husband if he would stay, he did like the computer work out on the oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. And she said if he would stay a little longer on the rigs and get them a little more money into their retirement, that she would shop his songs for other people to sing so they could get some royalties on it. (laughs) So she sent it to me. But in that song, it was just verse, 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 you know, verse, 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 chorus, verse, 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 chorus. No break. No, there was no break. There was no bridge. And I heard a bridge in my head. And so I called him and said, can I turn this verse into a bridge? And he's like, well, what do you have in mind? Kind of cautiously. And so I sang him what I had in mind. He liked it, but he was still cautious. He says, so are you going to want songwriting credit on this? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm good. I don't care. But (laughs) I don't care. I just this is the way I feel that I want to sing this song. And so he, you know, agreed, of course. And then I noticed later when his wife did record it, she recorded my version of it. She did not record his version of it. So I felt very validated by that. But yeah, I don't get hung up with that stuff. I think it all comes around how it's supposed to. And I don't worry about it. Great. Well, you've been amazing. Oh, thank I you, love Doug. Your work. Thank you, and, Doug. Uh, thank you for coming. Absolutely. I'm happy to be. I'm very honored to be part of this. Thank oh, you. I'm honored to have you share the heart and soul of your music with us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>